Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church. At Crossroads Community Church, our vision is to awaken the city of Pittsburgh and surrounding areas by creating cool places to experience God in local neighborhoods throughout Pittsburgh and beyond. Now here is this week's message. While you're getting situated and getting seated, just go ahead and grab a Bible, uh, open it up to the book of Luke, chapter 23. Luke is in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one under the seat in front of you, to the left of you, to the right of you, behind you, somewhere uh, around there's a Bible. And we are walking through uh, uh, this series where we look at the last words of Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. Um, and our goal is that we would see, uh, we would see ourselves and see others the way he sees us and the way he sees others, and he sees that our life has value, it has worth, and that we matter to him and that we are worth dying for. And I, I guarantee you, I guarantee you that um, if we begin to see ourselves the way that Jesus sees us, uh, then we will have more faith in us than some of us have in ourselves right now. Um, Many of us only see ourselves through the eyes of others because we hear their comments about us, their negativity or whatever. Uh, So we are taking some time to look at uh, what Jesus said about us. Now, last week we we said we're not only worth dying for, but from God's perspective, we were worth him not just dying for us, but dying to give us forgiveness. And then we said, well, we should look at others and be willing to extend forgiveness to others as well. So um, turn to the book of Luke, chapter 23. And we're going to continue looking at, uh, there we go, this this, um, particular passage of scripture uh, where it is when Jesus is on the cross. And I'm going to read through this, and then we'll come back and, and talk about it a little bit. In Luke, chapter 23, verse 32, uh, it says, Two other men both criminals, were also led out with him, meaning Jesus, to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, (coughs) excuse me, watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Verse 36, the soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Verse 43, Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, uh, as we read through the scripture, the most interesting thing to me, uh, just kind of like on a side note before we dig into our message, is the fact that when they took Jesus out, this is after they had already ridiculed him, they beat him to a pulp, they whipped him, everything they could, and then they made the decision to let's go hang him on a cross and watch him die. Now, when they led him out, they led him out 
with other criminals. Now, they, let, they did that because obviously they didn't, you know, believe he was who he said he was, which was God. So they were treating him the way they would treat any other criminal. They were treating him, they let him out with criminals, they, they were going to have him die with criminals, they mocked him like they do most criminals. But their viewpoint of him was he is no different than anyone else. A lot of people have that viewpoint. Here's the problem, though. Some of the people that had that viewpoint were the same people that were saying, but I believe in God. I'm a God follower. I'm seeking to know who God is. And it would be one thing if, for example, I, Floyd, claimed to be God, and the only thing I could do to show that to you was to keep claiming it. It would be another thing, and we talked about this last week, it would be another thing if I had walked on water like Jesus did, if I had raised three people from the dead, I mean, like clinically dead, not like passed out dead, not like, you know, at a Lady Gaga concert over inebriated dead, totally different type of dead, but I'm like dead dead, no hope of life dead. And Jesus raised them, brought them back to life. One even dead and buried, buried dead. And Jesus raised them back to life. It would be another thing if he didn't speak to, speak to nature itself, And nature itself literally responded to his will. If I see someone do that, who claims to be God, I'm going to think, you know, it might be true. I'm going to think that maybe this is God. And if I claim to be a Christ follower, like people today Say, I'm, I'm, I'm claiming that I believe in and follow. I, I know there are lots of people that have different viewpoints on who God is, you know, and I'm not debating that with them. But if I claim that I'm a Christ follower, that I believe that's who God is, then I can't treat him like I treat everybody else. I've got to treat him a little bit different. It's kind of like if, if, if you're married or you have a significant other, Um, You can't treat them like you do your friends at work or your coworkers. Well, I expected at least the women to say yes, amen. Let me speak to you guys. If you are married or you have a significant other, you can't treat them like you do your friends or your coworkers. Thank you. All right. Because they're a little bit more special. You have to spend more time with them. You want to spend more uh, time talking to them, hopefully, listening to them as well. And if you're not spending as much time with them as you do with everybody else, if you're treating them just like everybody else, it's kind of like telling them they don't have this place of significance in your life. And the same is true of a relationship with God. If we say that we are Christ followers, uh, and whoever says that, yeah, I am, I am following Christ, I believe that he is God, then I can't treat him like I do everybody else. I can't say, uh, you know, I'm spending more time on Facebook or Twitter, which I spend a lot of time there, but I can't say I'm spending more time there than the time I'm giving to God. That tells me I don't really believe he's God. That tells me he's not as important as all these other things. So they were treating him, and again, they didn't know any better, just like uh, 
they treated everybody else. But then one of the criminals begins to ridicule him. And he's like, if you are God, if you are the Christ, then save yourself and save us. Now, uh, the interesting thing is that one of the other criminals comes up to Jesus' defense. And it's interesting today in a culture where there are lots of people who are bashing religion and bashing Christianity and bashing all this stuff, but there are very few people. And I'm not telling anyone to go pick up a you know picket sign and stand out and picket, but surely... If we're Christ followers, we can speak up for the God that we believe in. Because here's a criminal who didn't even believe in him, but as we're going to see at this moment, whatever sparked this moment of faith in him led him to stand up for Christ. And the one said, hey, you know what? If you are God, then, you know, save yourself and save us. The other criminal, the other criminal makes three startling confessions. The first thing that he says, first thing he says is that, hey, We are sinful. He tells the other criminal, he's standing up for Christ, and he says, you know what? We are getting what we deserve. We've done wrong. You know, we broke the law. We violated whatever we violated. We deserve to be here in his own way. And he's got got no reason to make that leap of faith that he's making. And some would say he's got nothing to lose, but he's got absolutely nothing to gain. He has no reason whatsoever to put his trust in God. It's one thing if he was sitting there watching other people put their trust in God and seeing miraculous transformations in their life, and he's like, wow, I want some of that. But he's seeing people mock and ridicule and jeer at Jesus, and yet he's still making the leap of faith that says, I'm going to put my trust in him. And he starts with the confession that, hey, I'm not in a right place. There's something wrong with me. I've done wrong. I've got some stuff that I deserve to be punished for. Now, the second thing that he says, he says, he acknowledges he is, and the other guy, sinful. But then he acknowledges that Jesus is sinless. He makes the statement, he doesn't deserve to be here. He's innocent. He has done absolutely, positively nothing wrong, which is huge because there's a lot of people inside the church and outside the church today that don't even make that statement. There's a theological movement where a lot of people are saying that if, in fact, Jesus was really God, because there's a lot of churches you know, that call themselves God-honoring churches that don't believe he was, but if he was, they're saying he wasn't perfectly sinless. And here's a guy hanging on the cross, looking at, at Jesus. Now, you realize when you're going through a lot of like stuff together with someone else, kind of all the walls come crumbling down. I don't know how many of you are ex-military, but if you've, if you've been in the military and you've been in or, with some missions or combat, the guy in the foxhole next to you, regardless of your differences, those walls start to come down. If you've gone through, um, as a community or as a family, some financial hardships, you know, You may not get along all the time, but when you're all going through this together, those walls start to come down. When you're going through a crisis, you're not as critical of whose hand you're holding to walk you through it. When you're going through a medical crisis, it's great. You know what? I've been in situations where, you know, family members didn't get along that well, but then one of them is in dire 
medical situation. I'm not talking like a broke leg or something like uh, my sister uh, who, who died of um, AIDS. Uh, when she was in the hospital, there were family members who didn't get along that great. But when she was in the hospital, hey, you know what? All the walls kind of come crumbling down and you kind of stand together. And so when you're hanging on a cross, uh, you've got nothing, no, no defenses to put up. There's no reason to, to have all the walls up and, and, and put on the fake mask that says everything is all right. All the walls come crumbling down. And this guy says, hey, you know what? I've done wrong, but I'm looking at Jesus. He hasn't. He acknowledges the sinlessness of Jesus. And then the third thing, this is, this is amazing to me, is he acknowledges that, you know what? He is the way to paradise, what he calls paradise. He acknowledges that if I put, in my situation where I am right now, I've got absolutely nothing to gain, I've got nothing to lose, but if I put my faith and trust in you, I believe that I'm going to be all right. And this is the heart, this is the heart. I know we don't hear it a lot in in church today or on the radio, but this is the heart of the gospel message. It, G- Jesus didn't come and, and die so that we can get, you know, hundreds or thousands or millions of people into buildings. He didn't die so that uh, organizations, churches could buy millions of dollars of church property. And he didn't die so that we could, you know, call ourselves this, this, this political side, right, left, whatever you want to call it. He died so that people could acknowledge, hey, there's something not right with me, but there is something right with you. If I put my faith and trust for you, then I can connect with God. Everything's going to be all right. I may still be going through trials and tribulations and all kind of issues, but I'm in right standing with God now, the creator of the universe. Not only do I have family members who can hold my hand while I'm going through this stuff, I have the creator of the universe who can hold my hand and walk alongside me while I'm going through this stuff. And this is what the thief on the cross acknowledges. He acknowledges, hey, I'm, I'm sinful. I've got some issues and stuff. I know I've done wrong. I deserve the punishment I'm getting, which was death. He looks at Jesus and says, you are not. You are innocent. You are sinless. You do not deserve death. And then he looks at him and says, but you are my way to God. If there is a way to God, it's through you. That's how I'm going to get there. Now, uh, to get back to what we've been talking about, um, how, you know, God looks at us and says that we are worth dying for. He also says that we are worth spending eternity with. And the thief makes a statement, um, uh, you know, when you, your kingdom, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. I want to be there with you. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. And just on a side note really quick, that, that term paradise is a term that uh, has kind of divided people on, on what it means. It's actually, churches have split over it, because when we did our hell series, we talked about the fact that Jesus went down into hell, uh, what he called Abraham's bosom. And depending upon how you look at this passage, some people say, well, that proves that the Bible is not real, because Jesus makes this statement, don't turn there, but in the book of Matthew, Matthew 12, 38 through 40, He says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we desire to see a sign or a miracle from you, proving that you are what you claim to be. Now, this is in the Amplified Version. And the reason they were saying that is because he was claiming to be God. 
So for those people that say, well, he never claimed to be God, that's why they asked for a sign, because he was making God-like claims, claiming to be God. Verse 39, but he replied to them, an evil and adulterous generation, a generation morally unfaithful to God, seeks and demands a sign. But no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now he's telling them, imagine this, he's telling them, you know what, you're asking for a sign, but it was Pharisees and scribes, it was church folk, for lack of a better term, who were asking for a sign. It was the people that fill in the churches every Sunday saying, well, are you really God? It was the people that had the, you know, the big giant Bibles, like my Bible is big, but theirs are bigger with a suitcase and wheels and a handle type thing, like the big Bible. So that means I'm, I'm holy and I'm right with God. And these are the people who, when he showed up, were saying, hey, give me a sign that you're really God. And he says, I'm not going to give you a sign. Now, here's the thing that I love when Jesus talks, because he says, I'm not going to give you a sign, but you've already been given a sign, which is kind of like a smack in the face to them. Because these were the teachers of the law. These were the scribes. The scribes were the people that when they needed a new Bible, they didn't go to a printing press. They meticulously copied the Bible and the scrolls. And they had a way of copying them. They, each word was assigned a number. And to make sure they copied it correctly, they would mathematically add it all up and say, yes, they're supposed to, the total is supposed to be, you know, 1,876 for this page. I have 1,877. Something's not right. Scrap it, tear it up, start all over until it matched meticulously. So these are the people that are supposed to know the law. And it would be the equivalent of if you walk into, um, you know, a school and you ask the math teacher, you know, a multiplication question and they get it wrong. Nine times nine is what? And they say 77 instead of 81. And they get it wrong. This is, this is what Jesus was telling them because he says there's already a sign that's been given to you. And the sign was of the prophet Jonah. And if you guys know the Jonah story, I'm not going to go into it right now. It's where uh, God called him and said, go to Nineveh and preach to those people that they're going to be destroyed if they don't get right. And Jonah runs away. And he gets on a boat, and then he ends up getting thrown over the side, and this big, and I'm, I'm not going to go into this, but if you really want to hear more, you should come on Tuesday nights, where, where your Bible probably says whale or big fish. Uh, the accurate Hebrew translation is more like big sea monsterish creature, which some people say dinosaur. Some people say other things, and we kind of discuss that on Tuesday nights. But the Amplified Bible says... For even as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So when he told the, um, the thief on the cross, hey, today you will be with me in paradise, some of the people that were around hearing that were kind of like, ah, see, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Because he previously said, I'm going to be three days and three nights in the earth. Now he's telling this guy on the cross, oh, you'll be with me today. And there was this conflict. Now, really quickly, let me try to rectify the conflict. Jesus was referring to the word paradise, which can be translated two ways. So he tells the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, which means 
first and foremost, that you will, what your, your acknowledgement of your sinfulness, my sinlessness, and that I am to weigh to God, has put you in right standing with God. And the word paradise was also translated to mean, uh, and we talked about this when we did the hell series, Abraham's bosom. You guys remember that, that phrase when we read through? It was the place where if a person died prior to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if they were in right standing with God, then they earned the right to go be with God. But because their sins were not removed, when they did all the sacrifices, it covered the sins, but it didn't remove it, so they couldn't go into God's presence. If a person died and they were not in right standing with God, they went to hell. So there were people sitting here in hell, people sitting here in paradise, or what's called Abraham's bosom. And so when Jesus died, he went down to the paradise area, and he said, all you guys that are in right standing with God, your sins have now been no longer just covered, they are removed, they're washed away, they cease to exist in the eyes of God, so you can go into the presence of God. So, if you interpret the phrase paradise that way, then... The thief was with them that day in paradise. The other way it's interpreted, if you look it up in the Hebrew, it says both. It says that paradise place. Uh, it also says heaven. But then you have, you know, Jesus saying, well, I'm going to be in the earth three days and three nights. And this is where it gets theologically challenging because from God's perspective, we know God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father rules and reigns from heaven, but his presence is everywhere. So from a right perspective, if the thief immediately went up to heaven after Jesus died, then he was with God, which means that he was with God the Father. And if Jesus is God, then Jesus was right. And no matter which way you interpret that, whether it was, okay, he went down to paradise, which some say, that does exist, that doesn't exist. I don't know, I wasn't there. Uh, some say he went straight to heaven. If he did, he was with God the Father. And if Jesus was God, he was with him that day in paradise. Whichever way you interpret it is cor correct. But from God's viewpoint, what he was saying was, hey, you're going to spend eternity with me because of that profession of faith that you have made. And there are lots of people today that when they, you know, hear church or religion, they immediately think, you know, I got to start doing this right. I don't want to follow a bunch of roles, so who needs church, who needs God? Uh, I immediately got to, you know, dress this way. I got to start thinking this way. I got to start doing these things. And did Jesus tell any of those things to the thief on the cross? Did he tell them, well, you know, if you survive this, you got to start coming to church on Sunday mornings. Don't be late. Did he tell them you got to buy the economy-sized Bible? Did he tell them you got to dress a certain way? Uh, some people say they were hanging there naked. Some people say it was in their underwear. Whichever way, it was probably painfully humiliating, despite the physical pain. The only thing that Jesus said of him is that, hey, you'll be with me because you have acknowledged your sinlessness, that there's sin and issues and stuff in you that separate you from God. You acknowledge that I am the way to God, and you put your faith and your trust in me. All the other stuff that we hear about what it takes to get in right standing with God, we created. We put these bridges and these roads that stop us and stop other people from entering into a relationship with God because who knows why. We feel like we've, you know, it can't be that easy. But it is. 
God doesn't ask us, if you never step foot in a church building again, God's not going to end his relationship with you. You're going to get a stronger relationship if you're around Christ followers, sure. But if you never step foot in a church again, you're still in the right relationship with God, which is why I believe God allowed this to be put into his words so that we could know it's not about what we do. It's all about what he's done and his desire to spend eternity with us. Now, here's the problem. Let me ask you this really quickly. How many people have ever sat and thought about, like, the concept of eternity? Wow. I have not. I feel, like, so not in a place where you guys are right now. But eternity is, 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 is like foreverness. Now, let me show you this. Let me show you this quickly. Here's what dictionary.com says about it, and that means it's, yeah, all internet stuff, always true, 100% all the time. So uh, it gives us five references. First, it says eternity is infinite time, a duration without beginning or end. That means just time, whenever it started, it just never stops. And that whole sequence is eternity. He says it's an eternal existence, especially as contrasted with mortal life. And it says from a theological standpoint, the timeless state into which the soul passes at a person's death, which is, according to the Bible, actually true. When we die, regardless of whether you believe in God or not, you believe in eternity or not, you're going to spend eternity somewhere. All right. Number four, it says an endless or seemingly endless period of time. And then eternities, the truths or realities of life and thought that are regarded as timeless. And it basically, uh, if you boil it all down, it basically says this, that uh, eternity is either endless time, like time just keeps going, or if you step outside of time, that there is no time. Time doesn't exist, so it just, whatever this is just goes on forever. And if you think about um, um, what the Bible says about it, let me show you this real quick. Uh, you can write these down if you want to. In Psalm 93, verse 1 to 2, it says, The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and is armed with strength. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. And then in verse 2, Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. Now, this is what Solomon says about it in the book of Ecclesiastes. In chapter 3, verse 11, he says, He, meaning God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I mean, the Bible acknowledges that God is eternal. He's not confined to time, but it also acknowledges that God created and equipped us to spend eternity with him. That was the original plan. That was the plan A is that humanity, when God created man, that humanity would spend eternity with him. That was his plan. That was his goal. And even now you'll read, he says that, you know, it's his desire that none should perish. God still desires that everyone would come to that decision that that thief on the cross made. That, hey, you know what? There's some stuff in me. You call it sin, call it iniquity, call it issues, call it whatever you want that prevents me from connecting with God. That Jesus, who is sinless, through my faith in him, I can reconnect with God. Because he already wiped away all those sin, all those issues, all that iniquity, all that stuff that keeps me from connecting with God. 
So let me do this. If you think about it from an from uh, eternal standpoint, all right? Now, um, if you were to create a timeline of your life, all right? So you were born into your month, your day, your year. And then somewhere, you know, as you're creating your timeline, you would say, okay, at age five, learned how to swim. How many people know how to swim? All right, so at age five, six, or 46, whatever age, you learned how to swim. And then somewhere else, maybe age seven, you had a brother or sister that were born, and this is like what your timeline of your life looks like. And then somewhere else, at age uh, maybe eight, you learned how to ride a bike, or in my case, 18. Weren't a lot of bike riding paths in New York City, so it just never occurred to me that there was something that you needed to do. Uh, you know, it, it learned really quick, but still, you know. So age 8, 18, whenever that is. And then maybe at age, you know, 18 or whatever, another significance. Some people it's our house burned down. Some people it's we had to move. Some people it's, you know, grandma came to live with us, whatever the next significant event in your timeline of your life is. And then maybe the next thing is you went to college, played sports, or you got a job with this company. So as you're creating thinking right now in your life, these significant events that kind of, yeah, these are big things that I recall in my life. But then you add that and you take the birth of our nation, which has only been around for like a little over 200 years. That's not a huge chunk of time in the time span of humanity. But over, you know, 200-something years, maybe what used to be huge to you, if you look at our nation's history, that's just a small chunk of time. And then you expand that out even further. From the beginning of time to whenever time ends. And, and your portion, your, your, like, your portion of life, you say, well, I can't see it on there because it will be that small. Not that it doesn't exist, not that it's not important, but from the beginning of time to the end of time, it's small in comparison. Now, think of it this way. If that is the beginning of time and the end of time, all right, step outside of that and make this, this pencil. This is the beginning of time. This is the end of time. Time ceases to exist. Eternity is all this out here. And that's God's perspective on it. He sees all of time because he's not bound by time. So at the same moment he's looking at your birth, he's looking at your death. He's looking at your grandchild's birth. He's looking at the beginning of time. He's looking at the beginning of our nation. He's looking at the end of whether, whatever nation's end And he sees all that. He's not bound by it. He sees it all in an instant, all viewable at the same time. And all this out here, this is all eternity. And all this out here, God says, you know what? I know somewhere in here is your birth, your death. But I want to take you from out of here and have you come spend the rest of this with me. And if you think about your very best day, like the most awesome day of your life, which every husband on the way home, yes, it was the day I married you, honey. But if you think about the very best day of your life and the very best moment of that day and how amazing that was, 
it will pale in comparison to an eternity with God. God says that day will be absolutely, positively nothing on the scale because I want to pull you out from that day and have that day magnified and that day will just continue and never cease to exist because that's how much God loves us. That's the reason Christ came, to die on the cross. Not to give us rules, not to give us more regulations, not to make life difficult. He he said, I came so that you might have joy. And that joy is going to be magnified as we are spending an eternity with him. Uh, There's a man named Eugene Monroe Bartlett, and I'm going to ask the band to come up. And he wrote uh, a song, uh, one we're about to sing, and it's, it's one of those old school hymns. And uh, as he wrote this song, it was it was the last song. He he actually uh, some say was the kind of the the person who gave push to the modern Southern gospel movement. And uh, this was the last song of the many that he was famous for. This was the last song he wrote. And here are the lyrics to it. It says, "I heard an old old story, how a Savior came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary." To save a wretch like me. He wrote this song and he was looking at, you know what? All the issues. He was, he was that thief on the cross looking and saying, all the issues, all the stuff I've done wrong. God looks past all that. He sent his son to clean all that, to die, to clean all that away. And he, he wrote, I heard about his groaning of his precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sins and I won the victory. And that victory is the eternal life that we get to have with Jesus Christ. And then he wrote this chorus, which some of you may be familiar with, some of you may not be. It says, oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. When he wrote this, his, his mind and his heart was dedicated to the fact that Jesus came and died just so that we could spend eternity with him. And the only way that he could do it was to give his life as the penalty for our sins. So before we sing this song, I'm just going to ask you to bow your head for a moment. God, sometimes we forget as we go about doing this thing called church and this thing called life, we forget that it's not about how often we come into this building. It's not about trying to be right in the eyes of other people and men. It's really just about acknowledging your sacrifice, that you loved us so much before the foundation of the earth was laid. You looked at each and every one of us and said, I love you enough that I'm going to die for you. I'm going to extend forgiveness to you so that we could spend eternity with you. God, I pray if there's anyone in here today that if we're not in that place of acknowledging your saving grace, your love, your sacrifice, that you would speak to our hearts right now. 
that you would remove any of the roadblocks or barriers that are keeping us from making that profession of faith that that thief on the cross made, that we are sinful. There's stuff in us that keeps us from connecting with you. And that you are sinless without sin, without all of those issues, without all of that iniquity. And that you died to pay the penalty to wash away our sins, that they're washed away, as this song says, beneath the cleansing flood of your blood. And that you don't ask us to make any other commitment other than to just believe in our hearts and confess with our mouth that you alone are Lord. And when we do that, God, that we get the victory of spending eternity with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.